1: Ciao, Arsenal online community still undefeated, but this time for a good cause. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name's Alex Smith. You can block me on Twitter Yankee Gunner. We're going to do a podcast, and we're going to come up with stuff to talk about. League on, League de, they're not doing football anymore. The Dutch League, they're not doing football anymore. UEFA wants people to do football so that UEFA can have its its future earnings revenue understood. Uh, players want contracts. There's all kinds of things to discuss, and here to discuss it with me is Tim. You can find him on Twitter. Roberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. And Clive, you can find him on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Hello, Clive.
2: Hello, hello.
1: Hello, indeed. Uh, Paul will be back in the future. Scott will be back in the future. These are hectic and challenging times. And I hope you're doing well. And uh, I just want to let everybody know, we had the debate. We talked about the players giving back part of their salary. And me, me, I will call myself out. I was like, they shouldn't do it. Not because I hate the club and helping people, but because I had reasons. We won't relitigate the reasons. But what we did agree on that podcast is helping out is important. It sure is, and so we are. Uh, We are matching every pound you give to the Arsenal Foundation, up to 5,000 pounds. We want to blow past 10,000. We launched this yesterday, and we're already uh, well on our way there and beyond. Uh, The Arsenal Foundation has been wonderful in in helping us set this up. Uh, They do great work in the community. This is a community that is connected to the club, and that is the reason we are all here together. Uh, I, I think as much as we agree on football and disagree on football and argue and you know, uh, laugh and joke and meme and all the things we do. The club brings us together. It's why I am recording with these two fine gentlemen today. It is why you are listening to us, uh, which we love you for and appreciate. And all the things we always talk about. But yeah, it is it is really special to remind ourselves sometimes just how much we do care about this club and this community and our willingness to, to support it. So if you'd like to help uh, support the community in COVID-19 response, we are doing a fundraiser you can go to our Just Giving page, forward slash fundraising, forward slash Arsenal Vision Podcast. Uh, but an easier URL might just be the Arsenal Vision Podcast dot com forward slash donate, and that will then let you go right to the Just Giving page. Uh, all the money goes to the Arsenal Foundation. We are matching, so you give, we give. We're going to give anyway, but uh, you give more, we give more, and and we want to really blow away the goal and give money to a good cause and show Arsenal that we are willing to give back a little bit. Now, look, obviously, if you can't. If times are tough for you, uh, as they have been for some of us on the pod, uh, then totally understood. Give to your means. And if your means are, are, are nothing right now, then, you know, just maybe sharing the tweet or the Facebook post or something like that would be helpful. But, you know, we we are all in it together and and we certainly want to do our part. So, uh, Tim, Clive, I know you guys are are proud and excited of this. Before we move on from it, just real quick, because we are going to talk football. Tim, um, you know, the guys at the Arsenal Foundation have been have, and gals have been really supportive of this. It's a it's a great cause and it's one that's connected to the club. So not much more needs to be said, but, but great to get back. Right.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know um, a couple of guys who, who work for and with the foundation very closely from Arsenal. Um, And, you know, I've, I've done like articles with them in the past and, and events and things like that. And, uh, and, and I can tell you that all of this is going to really, really worthwhile places to people who really, really need it. Um and, good friend of mine uh, uh luke who works for he, he's uh, well, principally i think he's a disability officer at arsenal but obviously does lots of work with the foundation lots of outreach work and he's been out um delivering food parcels every day um to, uh, particularly to kind of children uh, who are who are vulnerable, or you know, in in um, bad economic states, whose parents are in bad economic states because of because of what's happened and lack of accessibility to food banks and things like that, and they've been really really active. And a lot of um, guys who usually you know just work at Arsenal and particularly in the hub, which people who've been to the stadium will know, sits like right next to the stadium, um, and it's a little community space with a couple of. 5 side pitches and everything and a lot of the guys that usually work there obviously aren't working there at the moment so they're out in the community and they're delivering food and amenities and, and things like that and and you know just trying to um trying to help people in Islington's lives feel a little bit more normal um at the moment so yeah absolutely really 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 proud um to be able to kind of help do a little bit um, for this, for, for for the foundation, and obviously it has it has an Arsenal link, a uh, very very strong Arsenal link, and that's entirely appropriate um, given this podcast and and given the fact that we get money for doing this podcast, so I think it's entirely appropriate that um, that we give some of that back to the very kind of thing and the community that binds us all together and 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 means that we can we can have great fun um doing this podcast
1: yeah well said and i I mean look there are lots of worthwhile charities and you know you certainly don't need to play the game of which charity is most worthwhile the point is to do something and this one made a lot of sense because it it is part of the organization that connects us all and clive i mean you know it, it is hard for me to connect with the community as a local community i connect with it as a global community um but the local community really comes to represent the, the, the global community. When Arsenal won the first of the trio of FA Cups to break the the uh, trophy drought and you know there's the parade through the streets and there's so many people there, you know, even though I couldn't be there, you feel like you're a part of that community, like you're a, a, a screaming voice in the crowd as Jack Wilshire is saying, What do we think of Tottenham and Wojciech Chesney is getting uh, drunk as can be. I mean it, it is at the end of the at the end of the day a community organization that we support and this helps the community.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, most, a lot of people, especially local fans, obviously, who, not, not everyone lives around the ground, or everyone, you know, trains in, and but that whole area around the ground is just full of life memories for many people. You know whether they be pre-game post-game and uh yeah it's a part of london that holds a uh, special place for 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 me from most of my adult life basically i've lost many a memory on those streets and um i think when you first came up with the idea earlier and we all spoke about it offline i thought it was a, a really appropriate thing to do it just felt like the right thing to do and um and it befits what we try to do on the podcast, try to act with a bit of uh, integrity. And um, and this whole COVID experience is something that we'll, one day, hopefully, we'll all look back on. And I said earlier online, I said, basically, when we look back, I want to say to myself, how did, how did we act? How did I act? Did I act in the right way? Did I behave appropriately to allow things to recover? Did I give something back? that you know at present you know i'm in a fortunate position and uh, i'm still working and still being okay so have i done my thing and i think this is a great vehicle and something that fits my life and many people's life listening this is the vehicle i thought we would try to uh, do our thing with and I, I think it's a great idea and thanks to everybody that supported us so far and i hope people recognize why we're doing this and continue to support us going forward
1: yeah well said i um i we won't do any more on this we'll we'll get on to the football chat but you know it, it is interesting sometimes when you realize you know you're going through a personal hardship as you you know not more than a couple of us here on the pod have experienced through this crisis and uh so many of you listening may have as well and then as you start to see yourself coming through it it's you know i mean i hate to say it but it is easier to identify with the people that are going through that struggle um, and it just sort of reminds you that when you have the opportunity to help out, that, you know, if you whatever you believe in in terms of karma or, or unity or, or pulling together, uh, it's just certainly the right thing to do. And so we're happy to do it. And I, I think it also absolves me of any suggestion that when I was siding with the players, not giving up their wages, that uh, I, I was uh, being curmudgeonly in that assertion. No, we, we want to help out and we're, we're happy to do it. So if you want to go to arsenalvisionpodcast.com forward slash donate, and, uh, click the button. It'll take you to just giving. Everything's on the up and up there and it all goes to the Arsenal Foundation. And as I said, for every pound you give, we're going to match. Um, we're going to blow away our goal. I am certain of that because if Arsenal has proven anything, it's that the sort of global and local online community is still undefeated. So with that having been said, you know who isn't undefeated? Uh, Liverpool Football Club. And now it's pretty unclear what's going to happen with their season. Tim, uh, France have now decided they're not going to, have a rest of the League Honor League this season. Uh, The Netherlands had already made that decision, I I think, a week prior. And UEFA's putting Mm. mounting pressure on clubs to do something so that they can figure out how they're going to make their money down the road. And I'm just sort of wondering, as this all starts to coalesce, what your feeling is in terms of where this might be heading, and and if you have any greater clarity, personally, on on what you think the range of outcomes could be.
3: So, (laughs) I don't have... um any great clarity i don't think anyone has clarity on the kind of how um but i think a few things have come to light in the last couple of you know in the last week or so i guess actually it's such a fast-moving situation um but i think first of all you know uefa have basically said uh you cannot void the season and expect to come into our competition so that's kind of and and personally i'm i'm happy with that i don't think seasons should be void at well I don't think the premier league should be voided i think that decision becomes much more understandable kind of lower down the leagues um for example where playing behind closed doors you know for leagues that don't have enormous broadcast uh, money attached to them makes no sense um and that's why for example i think it's an easier decision for the uh, uh the dutch league to take mm. because they don't they're not as dependent on broadcast money so it's easier for them to say do you know what uh, this isn't going to happen. Um, whereas in you know the the kind of big four, possibly big five leagues in Europe, that that's more of a consideration. And I know people, and I get it. I get why people kind of um, you know consider that a, a kind of a tool of greed. But at the same time, you do have to acknowledge that that is where a lot of the money in football comes from. And if you cut it off, then. that is you know however much you agree with the idea that that's where a lot of the money in football comes from it just does it's just an economic reality and they have to deal with it um but also what it looks like as well as saying you can't void it's looking like UEFA are starting to set deadlines for when things have to be resolved um and as much as i think still my natural inclination is to say what is the rush just wait until um you know, things are a bit clearer and play the seasons out once it's safe to do so. Why is there this big rush? And, and you know, sometimes I feel like there's an assumption that everyone's just kind of saying, oh, well, you know, like, let's just void it and start in September. And, and I'm kind of thinking, you think things are going to be back to normal in September? That's dream world. That's mm. absolute dream world. They're not like next season is not running from August to May or September to May. That is not happening Um, and European competition, that might not be able to happen next season at all. Um, So, you know, um, but on the other hand, to be fair, I think there are other considerations as well. So I think one of the reasons possibly UEFA is keen on setting a deadline, I think is largely driven by their own competition. But I think they possibly see that if they just let everyone play their seasons out, everyone's season's going to finish at a completely different time. Like we could have a scenario where the Bundesliga can get finished by August and there are other leagues in Europe that can't even start at that point so then what does germany do just like sit on its hands for another four months and waits for everyone else to finish so i i kind of i understand that there's like a need for synchronicity i think there are other things driving this as well there's obviously the the player contract thing i don't think that's insurmountable i think it's imperfect as a lot of, as pretty much everything is going to be about this situation, I don't think it's insurmountable. Um, But I think there are other things like, um, you know, the financial cycles upon which clubs operate. Um, So, for example, Arsenal, um, like most clubs, would be, usually would be expecting a massive influx of season ticket renewal money Um, by the 31st of May that's usually the deadline to renew your season ticket so that's 40,000 people handing over four figures to you Um, that's not going to happen this year so um, and there are a lot of things built into the club's planning um, and financial cycles that run from kind of June July and actually one of the things I read earlier today as well is that the TV company because a lot of People, I guess myself included, have been thinking, well, if you don't finish the season, the TV companies aren't going to pay for games that aren't going to happen. But apparently there is another payment due in July for next season. And perhaps an even bigger issue is TV companies going, well, hang on, if we don't know what next season looks like yet, why are we going to pay for next season? We're going to hold that money back. Um, and I don't know which of those sums is greater I imagine it's the one that's due in July so maybe there's a kind of there's a consideration of well all right we might have to kiss goodbye to like 910 games worth of broadcast money but we'll do that because then we're giving the TV companies some certainty over next season and you know if we make next season a full season if we can try and just make that a normal 38 game season, Uh, then perhaps we get all of our money for next season. I I still think that's maybe a bit optimistic to forecast that at this stage. Um, I think the reality is whatever happens, there is going to have to be flex built into it. Next season, whenever it happens, is not going to be able to be another 60, 65 game, you know, games every single day type of season. I I don't think they can do that for a couple of years because it might, get delayed again there might be a second spike any number of things might happen that we we just don't know about yet and therefore i think that the reality is they're not going to be able to plan much more than a couple of months in advance and so they're going to have to build some slack into the calendar. And that might mean getting rid of the the domestic cup competitions. I'm dubious as to whether the European competitions will be able to happen anyway. And they might just have to say, Do you know what, we're going to have to space this fixture list out a bit just in case we have to stop for another kind of two months or something. Um, so there's all of that. I also think. And and so the, the immediate reaction of particularly the Premier League clubs has been to try and ramp up the idea of being able to play again over the summer. And there is some speculation that the UK government is behind this because they see it as a, as a morale boost for the country. Um, if we can have some live sport on. I think the the issue with this is the flip side of that. Imagine if they try to get football going again. And because of the delicate the delicacy of the situation, it's abortive and they have to stop it. Let's say we get it all back again. We get everyone back training. We have this three-week build-up and we go, right, yeah, this weekend. It's behind closed doors, but it's on TV. You can watch it. Someone gets coronavirus. Bang, it's all fucked. That would be terrible for morale. That would be absolute. That would completely negate any potential good that could come from sport coming back again. Like, how depressed will everyone be if we make an abortive attempt to bring football back? And that's why I don't think Germany are going to go quite as... Oh, one of the many reasons I don't think Germany will go quite as early as they thought.
1: Mm, You know, I'm going to go into dangerous territory here because it's going to make it sound like I believe in something that I don't believe in. So maybe I shouldn't say it, but I'm going to because that's so on brand for me. I mean, what if... As testing becomes more prevalent, as antibody testing becomes more prevalent, we determined that a much higher percentage of people had it than we expected. I know there was one test that was run in New York where like 21% of the people they tested had it, and that didn't even include some of the high-risk groups for contracting it, which means probably even a higher percentage did, which would obviously drive down the mortality rate numbers. And if they start to develop treatments that show they have a pretty good effectiveness at reducing the seriousness of symptoms should they develop I mean, is there an argument that, sure, you still do it behind closed doors, but a player mm. getting coronavirus isn't uh, a cause yeah, yeah. for it to be abortive? I mean, if if you say, oh, you know what, half the players already have the antibodies because everybody had it, the mortality rate's lower than we thought, and this treatment seems to be relatively effective, and, you know, these are healthy young men, so we're going to treat it like a pretty contagious illness, but not a—, a Uh, mortality risk and we're just going to go forward with it and if someone gets it and they're too sick to play they just don't play I mean is is there a scenario and Clive I'm sorry I will come to you in a second I apologize but is, is there a scenario where the health risks to the players could be viewed differently in a few months to where they say a player having it doesn't mean we have to stop this plan
3: it's it's entirely possible yeah if that if that's the way things shake out and some some kind of drugs become available to treat it and alleviate it yeah absolutely um obviously we can't plan on with that any, any certainty um and sorry to be slightly depressing here I, you know i read um an article earlier this week that was essentially saying one of one of the things about covid is they still don't really have a handle on it they're still finding things out they're still finding different ways that it affects and impacts people and the blood clotting thing (laughs) is really scary did you come across that one yeah the the strokes and things like that yeah exactly exactly and and you know this article was saying by now they would expect if not to be able to you know conquer it and cure it they would have they'd be able to map it and actually we still haven't quite hit that stage there is there's still things that they're discovering um which makes me slightly dubious about um potential treatments i don't like you know listen i'm talking about something i know very little about so i'm relaying information here but you're right like it's a very fast moving situation like something might happen in the next two to three weeks that makes it all completely possible and and frankly I'm going backwards and forwards in my mind because there is a big part of me as well that's thinking well you know what at some point it's going to have to start up again and that's probably going to be in an imperfect scenario like that They're probably not going to be able to wait until, you know, there's just a vaccine and everyone's had it because everyone will go to the wall before that happens. And it's going to be the same for a lot of people going back to work and going back to workplaces like that. That's going to happen in some phased capacity before we have the vaccine. People will be going back to offices and stuff. um, And therefore you could say, well, why is football any different? Like we will just have to live with a little bit of risk. That's just that's kind of part of it. Um, so that, you know, that could happen. Um, you're quite right.
1: Yeah. I mean, because I, I think any suggestion that you are going to open anything up comes with the reality that someone's going to have it. And if you're saying, well, if someone has it, we shut everything down again, then you might as well not open up because it is an inevitability that someone will have it. So I think you have to decide we are never opening this period, or if we are opening it and someone has it, we are going to treat it like a, you know, chicken pox, you know, not like. The plague. And again, that's yeah. not that's not a scientific assessment. That's just a logistics assessment. So Clive, I'll let you weigh in on this and then I have a really interesting question for you that, that sort of red meat you can sink your teeth into. But um, that sounds good. Maybe I'll have some steak tonight. Um, I think there there is a real question about risk tolerance and the extent to which you expose people to risk. I mean, how important is it to finish a season? Um, you know, setting aside tribalism and, and you know wanting to laugh at Liverpool or not laugh at Liverpool. I mean, look, I have some sympathy with the idea that you're 30 years without winning a title. You're a fortnight away from celebrating it on record-setting pace and you never get to. But in the interest of ever getting back onto a schedule that could approach normalcy, it would seem to me that scuppering this season and trying to start a new one in some semblance of a timely fashion is the smarter move for football. I get that that's not something Liverpool fans want to hear, and I get that that makes things thorny for UEFA and the teams that would compete in those tournaments. But isn't it fair to suggest that trying to plan forward for a new season starting reasonably on time is more sensible than clinging to the notion that you can somehow finish the season that you've just aborted and have it look anything like a real competition?
2: It's. Um, I think football needs to to wake up and get itself out of its bubble, really. Because you said you said about planning, and how can anyone plan anything at the moment? Because we're not in control, and the virus is in control, and the only reaction to it is just going to change things. Is our is science basically, and the science is not there yet. As Tim alluded to, we are still learning about this new virus, and so. I, I feel there's a huge unknown to how it reacts to different individuals, which doesn't allow us to take risk. I mean, we spoke about scenarios if football started and something went wrong. Just imagine somebody famous got ill. And I, I use the word famous because there's been so many families been affected by this, but I think it needs to be somebody famous get ill through a football match. And, you know, God forbid something happened to him quite seriously. And, we can ask ourselves how important this all is. And it is very important to us all. We love the game, et cetera. But we love the game, and we love all around the game. We were talking beforehand about um, the club, et cetera, and, and our memories of the club. And, and football is something which brings people together, right? So when you're not bringing people together, you're basically playing a training game. So the product we think about bringing back is not the product that we all know and love. Right, so
1: so can, can I stop you there about- just for one second? I think that's such an important point because if you're going to bring a product back that isn't what it was, using that product to presumptively finish a previous season makes it so divorced from, detached from what that previous season was that it's you're not really finishing the season anyway. You know what I mean? You're you're doing a different thing at that point.
2: Yeah, you're going for emotions, right? So I've watched behind closed games, uh, behind closed doors games, and they're not the same. Um, we take anything at the moment. We, if a man has had steak for a year, and then you give him a little bit of steak, it's lovely, right? So we'll take anything at the moment, but it's not the same product. It's not the same thing. And I think it's going to bring its own problems. So the government are thinking, well, it'd be a morale booster. Well, throughout my entire life, I have, in the main, watch football matches with other people and so when at the moment i'm not going to the pub i miss it but when i do go to the pub i normally go to the pub to watch football this is football on. i'm going to really miss the pub and people are going to replace it with something else they're going to go around people's houses they're going to be there's going to be there's going to be lock-ins in pubs behind shutters there's going to be things happening around that game of football and it is not going to be conducive to social distancing. I promise you. In the UK, we had a very we had a very sunny weekend, and I think most people will say maybe the rules of social distancing weren't quite as adhered uh, to this weekend as they were the previous weekend. So, so it's it's a situation that's going to develop, and we're not in control. And we need to accept we're not in control. We need to accept that this is something that's moving very 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 quickly. Science is trying to catch up with it. We're trying to catch up with it knowledge wise. The government is trying to catch up with it. They didn't expect this to happen. I don't want to become political, but preparedness can be debated. And we're in a situation where this is something that's going to, we're going to have to learn to live with. And what that looks like is very debatable. Living with something like this, that could, between the three of us, we could all get and have three different reactions. Is something that has got too high a risk profile for me, mm. and I think football needs to breathe, sit, wait, and stop holding itself to dates, stop holding itself to principles that are no longer up to date. The principles of football we need to show, we need to rip them up, we need to rebuild them and start again based on what we can do. And whatever that is and whenever that is, and what we can do safely and morally. The situation yesterday, I think in the UK, I think there was uh, around 423 deaths recorded in the hospital, and I thought, wow, isn't that much better? Obviously, there was a lag on numbers. If it gets to the point where I'm saying, wow, isn't that much better for 423 deaths in one day, that tells me that people are becoming... Salutized to this, and without really understanding the impact. I had a great uh, show on TV the other week talking about where this is going to be in a few years' time, and we're talking about a National Health Service that's going to be massively under under threat for a short period of time. From a sorry, for a period of time which is going to be unknown, but it's going to be under a massive litigation threat going forward with all the families of lost people before before their time and how they react. And this whole situation is going to make football feel small. You know, it's going to make it feel small because it's going to be something that's going to be around in our lives in some way or form for at least half a decade.
1: Yeah. You know, yeah.
2: It's really very, very concerning.
1: Yeah, the echoes of it, the reverberations of it, certainly. I mean, I, I have a friend uh, who I went to law school with who is a litigator, and you know, he's bemoaning the fact that his law firm was, was really struggling and they were going to have to lay people off or furlough people. But what he said is, you know, make no mistake, we're going to be overworked, you know, for the next decade, just litigating concepts like force majeure in contracts. You know, what is an act of God, uh, and and how do you how do you get out of contracts, or how do you enforce contracts? There's going to be a lot of that, and you know, the, unfortunately, all of those things that that are sort of boring and dry and and political or or legislative or whatever the case may be, contractual they're going to have repercussions for the money in football, which goes a long way towards de- determining your club, the entertainment value, the players that you have and things like that. So I-, I think you're spot on. So Clive and Tim, let me, let's do this. Clive, I'll start with you on this one. Let's just for a minute dream up what the 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 crazies at the head of UEFA or, or the Premier League might do with this opportunity. I mean, there is a saying in politics, never waste a good emergency, right? Or disaster, and, and it's... It's sort of a, a dark joke, meant that like politicians love to use an emergency as a chance to squeeze in all kinds of policy initiatives that they've always wanted to do, because a lot of legislation gets passed very easily during emergencies, and there's a lot of pork in it. There's a lot of, you know, sort of unrelated issues that get addressed in these massive spending bills. But I think the same could be said of football. Maybe they get rid of the the, the league cup. You know, maybe they get rid of the FA Cup. Maybe they change the number of teams in the league maybe they try to eliminate relegation promotion I mean who knows there's nothing so crazy that it couldn't be off the table one of the things that jumped to mind for me is does European football need to look at an American model of salary caps wage restrictions you know maximum amounts that can be spent things like that and the only way you can do that is if you eliminate relegation and promotion which is at the very beating heart of league football so Clive I'll start with you any sort of thought about what the masterminds behind both uh, English and European football might try to squeeze through as a change to the game in the wake of this?
2: Yeah, I think when crisis makes you look at yourself and makes you look at what work, what's working and what's not working, and we spoke the other week about the PFA, for me that's not working. There needs to be, you know, what I think you quoted collective bargain type agreements with mm-hmm. player salaries. There needs to be control. We, we all know it's out of control it first started with the uh, the oligarch type owners that came into the game and then when the transfer market was getting under control there's always a big transfer to take it out of control and people are just reacting to this spend and that trickles down within the game it's making it unsustainable you know so um what my fear is you know there's, there's 92 league clubs in 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 the uk and in england sorry and Basically, there's a very healthy non-league. I just looked at the national league, and Notts County are averaging over five thousand people per home game, and that's in the non-league, right? So, so we got a situation where the game is in, is is incredibly important to so many people all the way down the all the way down the pyramid. But actually, my fear is it's going to be a breakaway, and because people are going to look at ways to recover lost revenue and there's the the haves shall we say if you look at the top six in the in the premier league the revenue between the person who's six i think he's us actually in west ham i think we've got double the revenue in west ham there's a huge gap there's a huge house and have nots regardless what's going on on the pitch that's the truth of it and that's going to be mirrored across the rest of Europe. So what does that say? What does that say we could be heading to? If you can have a smaller number of teams you can control, you can create masses of revenue by how that Super League is actually looked at and watched. And all the clubs say they're not interested in it. But trust me, they want to be where there's the most money to be made. And an opportunity, particularly next year, actually, that could be the one you know, where they can actually look at a condensed way of football that you can control that you want to you want to try out and potentially we could we could lose a season of normal football and have something less structured and that, and that could be within each country that could be you know no cup competitions that could be no european travel you can one of you can go one of a number of ways but i think it needs to we need to be opening our minds up to it and not trying to squeeze in our old structures into a timeline which we are not in control of, and so we need to really free our minds and say, "What are we trying to achieve here? What do we want to do? What can we morally, what is morally acceptable, based on what's going on in the rest of life? What can we do to bring sport? Because it's not just football; it's sport. Sport back into the structures of of everyday living, for, which is so important to so many millions of people." Watching sport, participating in sport in a safe in a safe way. now amateur sport is, is really under pressure for, for the whole of this calendar year, so at the professional level, what can we do? you know what can we control? and on, on the pay side of things, football has needed its financial reset for a while. We all know this. Um, we were the only club that tried to live in the dream world of safe, self-sustainability and financial fair play and the core it's got us. It hasn't really got us anywhere. So now we're in a situation where everybody's looking at their financials and their lost revenue and their benefactors. The last time I looked, people don't like losing. They don't like losing money. That's the one thing there needs to be a reset in the game. And it's going to be so interesting to see how that impacts contractual negotiations, which I'm sure you'll get on to, um, and how that impacts players today in contracts and looking to get their next contract. It's just from one of the things, also we talk about loss of life, and um, that's most important. One of the big, big things about this whole thing is the loss of, momentum for individuals and loss of ambition for individuals across the spectrum of life you know and not just a sporting spectrum people that have momentum in their lives that's been taken away ambitions in their lives that have been taken away I think that's a really sort of a un- unheard damage you know and a sporting life is very very finite window and we really don't know when so many, many really highly skilled and hardworking and talented individuals will be able to get their sporting life back up and running.
1: Yeah, well said. Uh, Tim, I I want to ask you the same question, and I'll just make a point because some people Mm. may not sort of understand why I I said that relegation and promotion might have to go away. So I do think that there is a real question of whether football can be sustained long-term, and you can say, well, it's already proven it can be, but hear me out, with this idea that, Rich benefactor type owners can just come in and balloon the transfer fees to to the moon, um, and balloon wages, and come up with schemes for getting around financial fair play. And I, I know City got their wrist slapped, but let's face it, like that doesn't take away any of their league titles. It doesn't take away any of the players mm. from their from their squad. I don't know how long that's sustainable. Now you have Saudi Arabia coming in for Newcastle and you know, this situation could just be further exacerbated. The way you prevent that is a salary cap, a wage cap, like Mm -hmm. you do in a lot of American sport, where you say basically every club can only spend X. And there are loopholes and things you can do and luxury taxes and things they've come up with. But by doing that, you level the playing field to an extent. And you also make running the club profitable. So suddenly you have owners that, you know, at least are in it you know, to, to run it with some level of business responsibility, which I realize is not our first priority, but they're not doing it just as a tool for soft power or, um, you know, j- just to use it as a plaything. But here's the problem with a wage cap. What's the number one most predictive uh, thing you can look at, criteria for where you'll finish in the league? Your wage bill. If all the wage bills are essentially even, then... An Arsenal could finish first. An Arsenal could finish 20th. That will happen. Some of the best teams in the NFL sometimes finish dead last because they just have a bad season. There's some injuries. Because when everybody's wages are roughly within a band of of similarity, you could finish anywhere. Well, once you tell owners you can't outspend your competition, you can't protect them from being relegated. And if you can't protect them from being relegated, why would they be in it? You're not going to own... A football club that is is worth more money, that has more prestige, that it has a bigger asset value, if it is at risk of winding up in the fourth tier of English football, right? So in order to bring in wage controls, you have to eliminate relegation and promotion, and it's such a fundamental part of the history of the game and the structure of the game, especially in England, I don't know how you do that. So that's why I say you'd have to eliminate relegation and promotion if you wanted to go to those cost controls, and I don't see how you get there. I mean, Tim, do you have any Thoughts on, on how that could happen, if it could happen, or other things that the the masters of football could try to sneak in through the door of this emergency?
3: It, it wouldn't surprise me at all. And actually, I think, well, so what is um, one of the key principles of the, the much-vaunted European Super League? No promotion and relegation. Mm-hmm. Um, how, I mean, how many U.S. owners have we got in the Premier League now? quite a lot um Um, you need 14 votes of the 20 teams to pass a resolution um i think you'd get those 14 votes regardless whether the owners are american or otherwise because what's happening now particularly is that there are a lot of billionaires that own premier league clubs now so even someone like newcastle like newcastle can improve their lot but um it's not Even even with the like the unbelievable wealth they're about to avail of, it's not quite like Chelsea and City when, you know, Roman Abramovich bought Chelsea. He was, you know, effectively the first the first real oligarch. I mean, we'd had like rich benefactors have always existed. But, you know, the first like real kind of oligarch, we've got like a nation's wealth behind us type thing. And you looked at it and you went, well, well, Chelsea are going to win the league. A few times, they'll eventually win the Champions League and they'll be one of the biggest clubs in Europe. And that's exactly what's happened. The same for Man City. But there's, <laughs> there's like a critical mass of billionaires now. And um, unfortunately, kind of after the horse bolted with Chelsea and Man City, eventually controls were bought in. And I know FFP is quite flimsy, but it still has had an impact. Like look at um, Everton, for example, You've got Everton backed by a billionaire. It hasn't really done a lot for them. And they have spent loads and loads and loads of money. And they're still like the really the best they can hope for is like seventh. Maybe they can steal sixth, which, you know, as far as things go is not a fantastic return on investment Hmm. so you look at Newcastle and you think okay you're kind of floating around lower mid table you're maybe a relegation threat probably not at the moment when play stopped but like nobody would be massively surprised if they went down like with the the control like they can't do what Roman Abramovich did they can't just come in and go right we're spending like a billion pounds on the squad because of the controls that exist. So realistically, Newcastle, what Newcastle are doing is effectively going, well, maybe we'll qualify for the Europa League, um, which will be better than getting relegated, but it's still small beer really. Um, Therefore, yes, I I think that if that vote was put, if that vote was put before Premier League clubs right now, um, I think there's a good chance that 14 clubs would vote for it, particularly in in this scenario and um you know j- just to expand slightly on on uh, the question you, you set particularly to clive you know stuff like the league cup yes the league cup is going to bite the dust because um it will go it will have to go for like one season anyway and nobody's going to miss it nobody's going to want it back and you know what we're going to lose some league clubs so Things like the League Cup, there's going to be a natural contraction anyway because some clubs are going to go out of business and they're not going to be in the league anymore, and therefore, the kind of the structure of something like a League Cup won't work anyway. Um, in in terms of, I guess, like innovative ideas, or not even inno- innovative ideas, but ideas, I, I guess one I'd throw out there is the Women's Super League uh, moved from a summer to a winter season in 2017. And the way they dealt with the transition, because the season was finishing in like February and they went, no, 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 we want to line up with the uh, with the men's game now. And the way they dealt with that gap was that from late March until um, late, like early June, um, they did something called the spring series. And that was just, it was a league and everyone played each other once. And, you know, you kind of, you got your fixtures and everyone played like an equal amount of home and away games. But yeah, the league was slightly slanted. So for example, in the spring series for Arsenal, they got their main competitors, Chelsea and Manchester City, away. They didn't get to play either of those teams at home. So, it, you know, it was imperfect and it was slightly skewed. But you know what? It was a competition. And the great thing about it was it actually ended up being a really, really exciting competition. And the main reason, and this sounds a bit weird, but the main reason was that not everyone took it that seriously seriously. Um, And so what happened, for example, Arsenal decided to experiment with some young players because they thought, okay, this is a bit of a free swing. We've got and bear in mind the league's smaller. So at the time, I think it had 10 teams in it. It's got 12 now. They went, okay, we want nine games here. We don't really care if we win the spring series or not. Like that's not going to be like, you know. It's not going to be like a massive moment in our history. So we had a pair of teenage centre-halves. And what we did was we played them in every single game. And it was really great fun. And some of the games that I saw in that little two-month period, there was a four-all draw against Liverpool. There was a two-all draw against Chelsea with two games in the last minute, uh, two goals in the last minute, um, one from each team. There were some really, really good games um, and part of it was, you know, you know, sometimes how League Cup games are quite exciting because um, no one really takes it that seriously, and teams put their young players out, and mm-hmm. teams try things out tactically. That's kind of how the spring series turned out in the women's game, and um, and and I think, and particularly if you're talking about, you know, once football's ready to come back, not everybody is going to be in an emotional place to invest in it to the extent that they were when play stopped. So actually you know taking a little bit of the seriousness out of it anyway might be quite good so doing something innovative with next season like that um, or introducing some kind of playoff system and they might have to do that anyway because of what i was saying earlier they might there's going to have to be slack in the fixture list and maybe they say something like look if we have to stop again for a couple of months we'll pick it back up with a playoff and we'll finish it that way and they might have to just be you know take things as they go and it might just be a really good chance for them to experiment with a few things um that you know tradition has kind of blocked them from doing in the past and if they don't work fine doesn't really matter it was an it was a tool of necessity don't worry about it they might work we might really have an appetite for playoffs like they do in the states like we Mm. don't really know because we've never other than in the football league we've never really tried it here like i know in brazil for example they used to they loved the playoff thing They, they went they went to like a European league system about 15 years ago. And every year there's the debate about bringing playoffs back. They've got much more of an appetite for it. Maybe we'll develop an appetite for it. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll think, no, this is rubbish, but we understand this is kind of a one-off. Like there is, there is an opportunity here. I think to be a little bit creative, to create that flex and to perhaps take advantage of the fact that people might not be as invested and they might be more prepared um, to do things Things like this and they might think well okay you know we're going to play each other once a season and yeah maybe we've been a bit screwed on the fixtures because we've got to play like three of the top four away but you know what um t- like tough shit that's just the way it goes and and maybe we can get like a little bit of that fun back that i think elite football is losing and has lost it's become too serious it's become you know i, I- I, I think VAR. We just
2: have to open our minds up to him. We just yeah, have to open yeah. our minds up to the possibilities that are ahead. Yep. And I, like I say, we have to throw away those structures because we are not in control. Yep. We are not in control. We what we can do. What we have to do, like many businesses out there at the moment, is we have to be strong enough and positioned well enough to adapt to what's yep. been we are allowed to do. And I don't, you know, I, I. I I care what it is, but I don't care what it is as long as it's appropriate for the circumstances by which we are living. And I think that's the really key thing.
3: And, you know, like like for me personally, like a big watermark moment um, that's made me feel a bit more disengaged from uh, from the Premier League and the context that my club operates in is is VAR. And it's not just because I happen not to like it. Um, And I happen to think it, it doesn't really work. But for me, it signals the moment that football started taking itself too seriously. The moment that it went, we cannot tolerate like a refereeing decision that we don't agree with. Like, this is too important. There's too much money. You know, this is too serious for us to tolerate that anymore that that's where like my big disengagement came with VAR. It's to be honest, like I can, I, I don't like it, but I can tolerate like a 30 second or a minute stoppage in an hour and a half game quite, quite often like large swathes of football games, nothing fucking happens anyway. And it's fine. But for me, it's the principle that that was the moment that we all started taking this too seriously. And it became work and not fun. Mm. And, Mm. Are You sure it wasn't when you started the podcast?
1: (laughs) No, no, no. I think
2: also, Tim, what it also did, and I mean, this has started for many, many years, you know, with people changing, you know, premiership games at the last minute and people like yourself having to rearrange travel arrangements and things like that. What this finally did for me was it disrespected the people in the ground Mm -hmm. and it really disrespected the fan in the ground and it made people think, well, I might as well watch it at home. Our um, well watch Watchers stream, and now potentially there could be a a reset there because if we do play behind closed doors, I think people will now realise how important the fan is. And they've got to really think about the fan experience. And um, for many Arsenal fans, the fan experience for over recent years hasn't been great because we've we've been so focused on winning or being in top four, etc. Or We're coming out of one manager, had a bit of a purple patch with a new one, then coming out of another one. So, you know, we make it what it is and we enjoy the social and we all get pissed up and it's great. But. It hasn't been what it used to be. But I don't think that's just Arsenal. And maybe that's just me in my more mature years thinking about the game that way. But I do feel it has been a disconnect. And I felt it more this year, hence why I've been more involved in non-league football. I felt it more this year... And I think football needs to think very, very, very carefully about its connectivity to its fan base, and really, really recognise that it's important we have a product, and part of that product is the fan in the ground. And I think VAR was a step to caring more about the conversation in the TV studio rather than the people watching the game. And I think, I think the soul of the game has been affected by it. And I said that from the start. And I think now we've all got time to breathe and think. It's not a far conversation. But hopefully at the end of this, when we all get back together again and we can sit next to each other, that the fan is recognized for what it actually is when it comes to the product of the Premier League.
1: Well said. I have to remember to take mute off when you're done talking. I, I got caught doing it. And I almost never mute because I just assume my mouth noises and tapping the table or things people want to hear. And this time I did it and I got burned. <laughs> um... I think we should start to wrap up, but you know, I I do think one thing that this, this does give us an opportunity to do is really reflect on what, what is it about football that we love? And what is it about football that we've just been conditioned to love? And I I do think that there, there is a question I have for mid table fans and lower table fans as someone who has recently become a mid table fan. (laughs) Um, Surely there is more to be had from watching football than hoping you finish 11th and maybe get into a Europa League spot. Surely there is more to a season than hoping to escape relegation. The relegation battle is fun for the neutral, but it's not a it's not a thing to strive for as a fan. Now, maybe, I don't know, maybe if you're a Birmingham City fan, like, that's fine. And maybe if you're a Southampton fan, like, trying to get up to the Europa League places is fine. I can't imagine it is. It certainly doesn't feel that way to us as Arsenal fans, and that may be because we're spoiled brats. But, like, maybe there is a scenario where there is no relegation and promotion, and I don't know how you decide who's in that league, but maybe a, a Premier League where every team starts every season with dreams of a title, because there is there are cost controls, there are wage caps, and even small clubs, if they spend to the wage cap, you know, can pull, pulling a Leicester won't be a once in a hundred years thing; it'll be a once in a three or four year thing. I mean, may, maybe that creates a game that engages us more, that brings back something that that we didn't even know was lost. I don't know. I mean, I we love football because we are addicted to it. But is the game healthy and good? I don't know that we could say it is. Um, and I, I think everybody kind of just below the surface understands that. Um, there are people, there are fans of the game right now, uh, maybe a younger fan, whose way of following the game is to watch whatever highlights get posted on Twitter or in Reddit watch goal clips, post memes, and have fun with the game that way, and play FIFA Ultimate Team. Like, the way people are connecting with the game is changing. So I think the idea that there are any sacrosanct legacies or traditions is, is just not accurate. And, and you know, the question, think, be, yeah, um, go ahead, Cliff.
2: Sorry, mate, I was gonna say, I think the way people consume the game is different. I mean, I think in, in the olden days, <laughs> there were times when everyone sat and watched the whole live game. That's not the case anymore. People take snippets of the game. People follow the game online. People, they don't just sit and watch the game like we used to because there's so much live football. It's almost saturated. So I think the way we consume it is differently. I'm not one for not having promotion and relegation because that's all I've ever known. I think it creates a, a jeopardy that we need to have. And I think if you look at the, the championship almost... Every club in that championship, apart from maybe Luton Town, has been in the Premiership at some point. Uh, and I think you need to have that sort of hope. You need to have the mountain top ahead of you. And although I do think there's going to be a situation where there's going to be loss revenue uh, recovery, and that could open us up to a separation, I generally hope it doesn't happen. Because the pyramid is what makes the, the the English game really special for me, and um, that pyramid needs to be kept in place. Even though it's going to be contracted, because I do think some League One clubs and League fold. Two clubs are going to find I, are going to find it very very tough without some sort of bailout. Because contractual expenses are still there, and there's no revenue coming in. There's going to be a lot of footballers unemployed very very quickly with no chance of employment in the near future particularly lower league level and that is awful it's absolutely awful you know and these guys are not on the money we talk about Mesut or for example so there is so much pain there's so much reset to go through and none of it's a controllable variable for us to to manage going forward and plan against. we just have to wait. And I'm afraid the answer's in science. And until we that gets sorted out, um, we can't even think about planning to the structures that we're normally used to.
1: The phrase that comes to mind for me is, football is dead, long live football. Because it will inevitably change, and we will inevitably lap up whatever they give us. I don't think it is beyond considering that maybe what they've been giving us is a little more broken than we recognize. And that maybe there is another way to do it, that although it breaks with tradition and breaking with tradition is hard and painful, may actually be better. Tim, I'll finish the topic just by asking. I mean, I'm sure you know fans of clubs that are not competing for titles every year. Is, yeah. is it rewarding to root for eighth place? To hope for a Europa League chit spot? To maybe finish top half of the table? Have a couple of good days out? I mean, I think what's changed, right? Tim, when this was predominantly an activity that was at the stadium, you went to the ground, you had yeah, yeah. you had drinks with your mates, you, you sang the songs and you went home. Where you finished in the table was just sort of a byproduct of an activity that was social and, and celebratory. But now that the overwhelming majority of people consume it online and on television, for those people it's not that experience. And so I have to wonder what those the fans of those clubs or how those clubs even attract fans to root for a mid table existence. I mean, is there, is there a way for that to work in a football game that now is dominated by TV money and broadcast revenue and streaming rights more than the, the, the experience at the ground?
3: Yeah. I mean, I mean, this, this is uh, not a new question really, because like the premier league, um, still kind of has equalization of the TV money. Um, for that exact reason because they they know that the popularity of quote unquote the product relies on it being at least competitive um i'm not sure like i i think it was a really interesting discussion you guys just had um i think like looking at the way that millennials consume football Um, is a worthwhile exercise at the moment if you're thinking about this is a bit of a year zero this is a bit of a millennium bug moment and it all needs resetting anyway Mm. and nothing's off the table and all the traditions are out the window anyway they've been thrown out the window for you Um, so looking at things like that I I think very very worthwhile and there's there's um, there's a chance to kind of take a breath and and look into some of those things Um, but I mean the other thing is I'm not sure how interested um, some audiences are in kind of... Well, I I think there are a lot of audiences that that aren't interested in the league being equal. They're interested in what's best for their teams and they consume their teams um and you know there's there's been a natural move towards that anyway um <laughs> hence this podcast people want like club uh, specific content and stuff like that but but I, I do think as well that that quite a lot of people uh that, that sorry there there is perhaps a generation that isn't as interested in in perhaps the idea of um of of the league, of the games being competitive like um you look at barcelona for example people like one of the big ways barca make loads of money is that like barca rarely sell out the new camp this is this is one of like <laughs> the, the kind of the big lies of their success they very rarely sell the new camp out um for most of their games and the new camp is a really bad crumbling i'd say dangerous ground not even just decrepit but dangerous um actually to watch football in and uh but but the way they make their money is they charge their socios um peanuts to watch uh, relative peanuts to watch games but they charge tourists top dollar they charge their one-time only customers Mm. lots of money and they sell packages um, to people who come from other countries and Barcelona's a beautiful city so you go to Barcelona for the weekend you have some tapas you have some beer and some sangria you go and watch Barcelona those people don't want to watch a 1-1 draw they don't want to watch Hetafe um, shit shit house their way to a 1-1 draw they want Messi to score 5 goals and for it to be 6-0 and then to go back out into Barcelona and have a couple of drinks so actually I'm not sure how important the equality of the competition is to some people um, and therefore uh, whether the powers that be will consider that an important thing to preserve or even to try and claw back. Um, If you look at the, uh, just look at a list of the English league champions in the seventies, I think there's seven teams that won it inside that decade. Um, You know, it was hugely competitive wasn't very popular (laughs) Mm. though um wasn't hugely popular you know a lot of the popularity is driven by these these kind of huge brands in football and that's why i think um as as much as there's there's reason not reason but you know one of the hopes is there are good things that we can do i i think unfortunately the world doesn't work like that and people's habits and people's voting habits and things like that shows you that's not really the world that people want either um the inequality is is something that generally is of interest um to a big part of the population and therefore i think a european super league will happen even quicker on the other side of this, because there are some clubs who are completely insulated from this and they're going to come out of this and they're going to go, why are we like, why, why are we with these peasants? who have got the begging bowls out. We want to go and play with our mates, PSG, Juve. We want to go play with those guys and the guys that like, the ones that are still able to spend fifty million pounds on footballers. We don't. We don't want. You know. We don't want like Southampton with the begging bowl. Um, you know, rocking up at our place anymore. Like I. I think. You know. They're going
2: uh, to want absolute certainty, Tim. Yep. They're going to they're gonna take it in the pocket right now because they have to, yep. to to protect their asset. But going forward, they're going to say, oh, by the way, lads, I'm not doing that again. I well, want yep. absolute well, certainty going forward. Well, th- th- I mean? th-
1: think of the financial reality because here's the deal. Right now, if if I said to you which is going to get bigger viewership, Barcelona versus Manchester City or Manchester City versus Southampton, I think we know the answer. It's Barcelona, Man City, right? Um, you know, Liverpool, Real Madrid, going to get more viewers than Liverpool, Birmingham City. And one of the reasons is not just the fact that Liverpool and Birmingham City is not even matchup it's that there's very, very, very little at stake in some ways, right? One of the teams is going nowhere. Granted, for Liverpool, there may be a lot at stake because you can only drop you know, nine points in a season these days and still win the title. But I think what I'm trying to say is if you could create parity in the league through wage controls, you are more attractive to ownership, you are more attractive to fans of 75% of the league, and now suddenly every single game in the league has the potential to be a game between teams contesting the league title. And then now you don't, you have something because you, you could maintain some existing local rivalries. You maintain the the intra-England feel of the league and the the sort of intensity and passion that that stokes, the the fan support, but you make these games have something on the line because if they do create a European Super League like that, those games are going to be bigger. Will they ever reach the same intensity that that a league game can have in terms of the support and the passion? I don't know. But those league games have to go back to meaning something. And for 80% of the league, when they meet each other, when a Southampton plays a Birmingham City, you know, hell, at times this season when an Arsenal plays a Watford or something, it just doesn't mean anything. And that's no good for anybody. So football needs their games to matter and matter for more people. And the less the fan at the ground is the driving factor in the economy of football, the more the structure of football has to be of interest to the fan watching at home. And Tim, I know that's going to rankle you a little bit because that's not how you connect with football. But economically speaking, the money from football now comes more from streaming rights slash TV rights than it does from ticket sales. And if that's the case and that need that, that, that machine's got to be fed. You feed it by making the games matter to the viewer. You can no longer say, oh, yeah. hey, it's it's about a piss up and your friends. And, you know, that's the story that football was able to tell people yeah, yeah. to get away from having to actually have some of these teams mean anything, you know, competitively. So it'll be interesting. Look, we've hit the hour mark on a topic that we will have a lot of time to discuss. I was going to ask you what you thought of Saka's cryptic tweet with a a, a um, what are those things Peace called? Dave. It, it was, it was a, it was a, uh, the, the thing, you turn it over and sand runs through it and it, the egg timer. The, the, but it's, but it's called a, what, what, the hourglass, an hourglass. Jesus. Yes. For yeah, goodness yeah. sake. Um, also my favorite shape, never mind. Um, so yeah, we were going to discuss that, but you know what? It'll all be determined. Clive is convinced. It means he's staying. So that's good. We can move on. Clive's on Twitter. Clive PFC. Thanks Clive.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Tim's on Twitter. At Thanks Tim. My pleasure as always. My name is Alex Smith, you can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner And give, give, give generously. Or if you can't and do not have the means, then we are with you and we care for you. And we hope that there is support for you. And hopefully maybe some of this support will find its way to you. But we are all in it together. So if you want to do it, you can go to ArsenalVisionPodcast.com forward slash donate. ArsenalVisionPodcast.com. You'll see a banner on the site. Or you can just go to Arsenal ArsenalVisionPodcast.com forward slash donate. It'll take you to the Just Giving page. I'd give you the Just Giving page, but it's like a long URL. But if you want to look it up there, it's the Arsenal Vision Podcast one. And we want to thank uh, the Arsenal Foundation so much for uh, helping us understand how to do this, put this together, and execute on this so we can raise some great money for a great cause. So we're all in it together. We love you, and we will talk to you after Arsenal 20, COVID 19. Oh